Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Over the last decade, the political far right has roared back into power, not just with Trumpism in the U.S., but with populist movements around the globe. Understanding why this is happening and what we can do about it requires understanding the nature of the right as well as its history. That's why I was so happy to learn that my friend and frequent guest Matthew McManus has a new book, The Political Right and Equality, in which he traces the philosophical development of right-wing ideas. Matt is a lecturer in political science at the University of Michigan, and it's my pleasure to have him back on the show to talk about the nature and motivations of the right. Your book is called The Political Right and Equality. And those are a lot of, they're frequently used terms, but ones that are definitionally often slippery. So as I like to do, let's start with a little bit of definition. What do we mean by the right? Sure. Uh, well, thanks a lot for having me here. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk here. Uh, and it's a lot of fun to actually talk about this book that I've been working on for a long time. So I think that in order to talk about the modern right, we need a little bit of history. Uh, so I'm going to go backwards before I land in your definition, do that annoying academic thing uh, of adding context, right? So the, my story of my book uh, actually begins with Aristotle uh, and the antiquarian worldview or the Aristotelian worldview, as I sometimes call it, uh, which is defined by what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls a social model of hierarchical complementarity. Uh, and that's a big term, but what it basically just means is that philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, uh, saw nothing wrong with insisting that there are recognizably superior people in any given society, uh, and they deserve to have a higher degree of status, a higher degree of power, a higher degree of uh, influence on their society. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the people at the bottom rung of any given social period uh, are inessential or can be disposed of. Uh, like any other period, pyramid, the base is as necessary as the top, but that doesn't mean that the base is entitled to the same kind of dignity uh, or the same kind of worth uh, as people who are at the summit. Uh, and Taylor uh, and other people like Gons point out that this model of hierarchical complementarity more or less uh, was the operative conception for a lot of political theorists going all the way up until, depending on when you want to demarcate it, uh, you know, the 15th, 16th century, around the time when liberal values really started to encroach on this vision of the world that's predicated on a social model of hierarchical complementarity. But what you start to see with people like Locke and Hobbes is actually an inversion of this supposition where they say, actually, far from there being demonstrably or recognizably superior people who are entitled to more status, affluence, power in society, everyone in a state of nature is equal. Uh, or if you're a Christian thinker, everybody is equal before the throne of God. Uh, and that's the baseline expectation. Uh, and what this does is start to put pressure on these hierarchical visions of how the social world should be organized, because now the default expectation is that people are equal and you have to justify inequality, not the other way around. Uh, and my claim is that the modern right, with Burke and de Maistre, emerges uh, around the same time as the various revolutionary movements that try to put these egalitarian philosophies into practice. You know, you think about the American Revolution, French Revolution, uh, Haitian Revolution, very important one that people sadly always forget about. Uh, for a lot of colonial reasons. Uh, and what you see then is the modern right wanting to restore something like this vision of hierarchical complementarity that existed in the antiquarian world, but recognizing that it's no longer hegemonic or the default position that a lot of people just come back to or just suppose is natural or ordained by God. You now actually have to offer original intellectual defenses of a vision of hierarchical complementarity and this idea that, as Hayek puts it, there are recognizably superior people in society. And in order to do that successfully, you're probably going to need to draw very heavily a lot of the on a lot of the insights and arguments that your enemies uh, are bringing up. Uh, and so this is what people like Burke, de Maistre, and pretty much everyone else in the book ends up doing. And uh, to give the shorthand definition, this is uh, where I actually agree with F.A. Hayek um, in his uh, little essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, where he says, listen... There are all kinds of good reasons why it is that liberals support various forms of social hierarchy. Liberals don't necessarily believe in equality in all respects. But what differentiates liberals from conservatives is this conviction that there are recognizably superior people in society and that social hierarchy should be organized to put the recognizably superior people at the top. 
uh, or another person I bring up as uh, in the introduction is James Fitzjames Stevens, uh, a very famous critic of John Stuart Mill's, where he says, listen, to obey a real superior, what is a real superior is a tricky question, uh, is a great virtue, right? And it's the glue that holds society together. Uh, and what we're going to see throughout the history of the intellectual right are many different attempts to define who this recognizably superior or real superior kind of person is. And every thinker is going to have a different understanding of what that means. It seems like there are a couple of ways we could think about hierarchy in, in I guess, call it like a natural sense. One is as almost like a normative concept in the sense that this would be at, at its, you know, clearest version would be something like some people, maybe certain races, are born superior to others. And so they are going to both, in the scheme of things, be higher up in the hierarchy, and it would be actually morally wrong to interfere in the, the natural emergence of it because you'd be taking these naturally superior people and making them low. So it is, it is there's something baked in from birth and it's like we people are kind of categorized at like a metaphysical level on the other hand and this is the one that i see a lot of a lot of conservatives defend uh, and a lot of free market sort of people defend is something more like a descriptive account of hierarchy which is that there obviously are differences between people like you and i have you are a far more productive writer than I am. And, and so if if the two of us were building our careers around writing, the likelihood is that you're gonna have you're gonna do better at it than me. And so in the writing hierarchy, you're gonna be higher. Uh, but I might be better at other things than you. And and in a free system, markets are gonna pick what people in the aggregate value or don't and that may change over time but like a differences so differences in wealth differences in social power those are going just to emerge from the fact that people are different but that's not that creates a hierarchy but it's not a natural hierarchy in the sense of like socrates saying people are born with different sorts of souls or or a racist saying that race creates natural hierarchies are both of those what we're talking about when we talk about the right or does the right depend upon more the former more kind of the natural versus the emergent or descriptive well i'd actually argue that there are two primary ways uh that the right will try to defend division of social hierarchy uh and these are very different um although they overlap in some respects uh, with what you find when liberals try to offer a defensive hierarchy. Because typically when liberals uh, will offer a defensive hierarchy, particularly utilitarian-minded liberals like Hayek, uh, the argument is, look, people are clearly morally equal. Uh, it would, in an ideal world, uh, everybody would have an opportunity for flourishing that was more or less equal to everyone else's. Uh, but we got to be realistic about this and recognize that people also have divergences in terms of their natural talents. And the market will also reward certain kinds of natural talents more than others, because that's just in line with what people's preferences are. Uh, and so the best thing to do in order to instill efficiency in society, particularly economic efficiency, is just to have a competitive uh, race within the market. Uh, and whoever's natural talents end up being rewarded. Well, you know, we weren't going to say that they're instinctually uh, or naturally better than anyone else. Uh, but they are entitled to that uh, as a reward for services rendered uh, in terms of increasing aggregate utility, right? Uh, now, there are some conservatives who will sometimes flirt with these kinds of arguments, uh, but not many, right? Uh, in fact, if you think about somebody like Ayn Rand's critique of hierarchy, uh, or sorry, critique of Hayek, uh, precisely because he's not respectful or reverential enough of the truly productive class uh, and what distinguishes them from the kind of lower orders, that's a good place where you can demarcate uh, a kind of right wing. Uh, approach to understanding the market from Hayek's more liberal approach to understanding it. But to my main point, right, I think there are two ways that conservatives have defended hierarchy or the right has defended hierarchy over the course of its history. Uh, the first one is called sublimation, right? Uh, and this is a term I draw from Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolutions of France, uh, where he says, wherever man is going to be put over man, it's very important to ascribe what he calls sublime qualities uh, to 
the person who's going to be put over anyone else. Uh, and these sublime qualities can vary widely, right? Uh, you can think about the kind of honorifics that we associate with the monarchy, for example, uh, or the majesty that we would ascribe to something like the aristocracy, uh, right down to the kind of pomp and circumstances, right? All of these are meant to suggest that there's something just innately better about these people uh, that entitles them to rule over someone else. Uh, now, Burke is actually remarkable in that he's quite self-conscious about the fact that these sublime qualities might not actually be intrinsic to these persons themselves. Uh, in fact, one of his criticisms of Enlightenment rationalism is that they strip away what he called all the pleasing illusions uh, that made submission to the ruling elite easy. Uh, because once you just start to see, as he puts it, uh, the queen is just a woman or the king is just a man, it's a lot harder to sit there and think, well, they should be set above me, right? Uh, some very interesting things there. And you see examples uh, of these kinds of efforts at sublimation all throughout the conservative tradition. Uh, so for instance, one of Burke's contemporaries, uh, a little bit younger, Joseph de Maistre, would often talk about how the founders of kingdoms uh, were almost invariably kings, uh, and they had been chosen by providence or even God because of their mysterious qualities uh, that elevated them above the ragtag um, ordinary human beings. Uh, and what Demaestra is really innovative about in, in saying is, listen, precisely because kings have this sublime quality to them, subordinating yourself to them is actually way more elevating than participating in a democracy, right? Because you get to become part of this grand project or grand enterprise that the king is exercising. Whereas if you live in a democracy, then, you know, it's just you and every Joe six-pack making decisions about things. It's nothing really it's all that elevated about that. Now, sublimation is less common today than uh, it was, say, around Burke's time, because it's a little bit harder to make that case. But you still see many examples of it on the political right. One that I bring up is a, a good friend, Dr. Jordan Peterson, right, where he talks in his Conservative Manifesto, Part 2, about how inequality seems, as he puts it, deeply and mysteriously baked into natural reality itself. Uh, you know, how some stars have more mass, some rivers, you know, get more water, oh, some oceans are bigger than seas, and it gives a whole list of these things, right? Which is, again, attempting to sublimate various forms of inequality. But the more common way of trying to justify inequality today uh, is to naturalize it. Uh, and this also has a normative dimension, to be clear, uh, to suggest that, well, there are some people who are almost set out by nature or signaled out by nature. Uh, as being recognizably superior. Uh, and this, of course, can be more appealing to people in a kind of enlightened age or post-enlightenment age, because uh, it usually will emulate uh, the style uh, and the empirical fascinations um, of liberal rationalism. Uh, but it's usually much more muscular in insisting uh, on the differences uh, in terms of human worth that one can see within nature. And there are many forms of social Darwinianism uh, that can be found in this. Uh, one example that I bring up in the book is uh, Nietzsche, for example, right? Uh, Nietzsche is very insistent, for instance, that he wants to reject the lie of equality of souls. Uh, and one of the reasons for this is he says, look, once you reject the idea that we're all equal before the throne of God because God is dead, what you need to recognize is that we are thrown back into a world uh, where some people are just stronger than others, right? Uh, and there's nothing necessarily wrong about that. Uh, in fact, he once uses this very powerful metaphor where he says, it, the sheep might look up at the eagle uh, and think that the eagle is evil, um, but really the eagle is just hungry when it preys upon them, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's entirely natural, right? Uh, so in the same way, it's natural that some human beings will be predatory and rule over others uh, because that's just the way that the universe or the world operates. Very nice example of naturalization there. Uh, or more contemporaneously, you can see various attempts to justify uh, racial inequality in very similar ways. Very famous example of this is uh, Charles Murray and uh, Hernstein's book, you know, The Bell Curve, suggesting that if there are inequalities within society between people, uh, that can almost entirely be attributed to differences in intellectual capability. Uh, they measure it by IQ, you know, obviously controversial, but let's just go with that. Uh, and they then very controversially go on to say, you know, there's a lot of this fear over racial inequalities, uh, and many people attribute that to white supremacy, a white supremacist society. But actually, the real reason for this is that certain races of people are just 
genetically inferior and are consequently predisposed to having lower intelligence quotients than others. There's nothing that we can really do meaningfully about that. So the best thing is to feel a sense of pity, maybe for these people, uh, recognize that it's not their fault, but what are you going to do, right? Um, some people you know, can do higher math and some people can't. You just have to learn to live with that. So that's another great, clear example of naturalization uh, and trying to imply that there are recognizably superior people in society. They deserve what they get and the people at the bottom, well, you know, you don't necessarily need to actively try to oppress them per se, uh, but there's really not much that can be done for them. That naturalization is definitely a really common and I guess powerful argument that that the right makes pretty frequently. I'm thinking of recently, I did an episode with Jillian Brandsetter of the ACLU about trans rights and gender and and the idea that when that basically naturalization so the the way the argument's often framed is we recognize these natural categories and therefore they they lead us to believe that such and such a hierarchy is is itself natural just etc cetera, etc cetera. but that frequently more frequently what you see is the arguing in the opposite direction which is here's a particular hierarchy that i like it aligns with my preferences i personally benefit from it i think it's better so on and so forth, or it's just what I imagine to be traditional and what I'm used to. And this set of ideas threatens that hierarchy. So this is a lot of that. I like. I have my objections to things that critical race theorists say, but most of the objections to the panic about it is because it it threatens to destabilize certain sets, certain lifestyles, and sets of hierarchies that people benefit from or have a preference for. And when that happens, or patriarchy sees transgender identities as a threat to male identity. When that happens, suddenly you go out and you start looking for, you know, when when white male status drops, suddenly all of these white male liberals get really interested in human bi biological diversity thesis. And that you you go looking for the thing that you can now call your preferences natural as a way to defend against them versus what would be, I still think it's wrong, but the more intellectually honest, which would be to go out and look at what's natural and then derive your conclusions from that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, this is one of the points that I make uh, in a recent article I published uh, in Commonwealth on sublimation and naturalization. It's fairly easy now for progressives uh, to debunk sublimation, right? Uh, in fact, it always has been. You know, Mary Wollstonecraft, a uh, wonderful liberal and a critique of Burke, uh, described him as having a mortal antipathy to reason, uh, who was almost kind of bizarrely attracted to these gothic notions uh, of beauty and aestheticism. And she's like, yeah, you know, maybe you sit there and think that the king in his castle is resplendent and glorious and we should defer to that. Uh, but my say that when the ivy chops up new growth, uh, who wouldn't tear it down, right? Uh, very effective kind of criticism uh, of Burke. Uh, and, you know, I've played my own role in that and so have many other progressives, right? Marx was a very talented at this as well, you know, kind of deconstructing the kind of forms of fetishism uh, that people attach to power. But naturalization is much tougher, right, uh, for progressives to deal with. Uh, I think in part because there are clearly natural differences between people uh, in terms of their aptitudes, their tastes, uh, their different talents. You know, as you mentioned, you know, I can maybe write a little bit more than you, but I'm guessing that if you were to play, you know, a uh, RPG campaign, you know, you'll beat the pants off of me. So, you know, there are different aptitudes about this. And to a certain extent, that's a good thing uh, as well. You know, uh, any progressive would acknowledge that this kind of differentiation between individuals is something that adds richness and texture, uh, including differentiation between culture. But I think that there are many ways that we can push against the naturalization thesis. Uh, and I'll just give two quick examples. So let's go with the patriarchy one to begin with. Uh, one of the things that's interesting uh, about arguments in defense of patriarchy uh, is that Many people think that, you know, there's a lot of novelty to these responses to feminism. Actually, they go really way back. Uh, so I really strongly encourage your listeners to read a book, uh, Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity by James Fitzjames Stevens, uh, which is a book-length rebuttal to John Stuart Mills um, by a very famous British conservative in the 19th century. Very smart book, by the way. Uh, but one of the things that Fitzjames Stevens takes issue with uh, when he's not arguing that, you know, to submit to a real superior is a great virtue is John Stuart Mill's feminism. Uh, so Mills famously defended his feminism in liberal, uh, I would add liberal socialist terms, right? Saying, look, you know, women are human beings. They're, you know, entitled to 
the free development of their capabilities, just as men are. Our society hasn't respected that for a long time, uh, including within the family, and we need to do something about that uh, by ensuring that they are more equal, or at least granting them you know, equal liberty. Uh, Fitzjames Stevens takes issue with that by saying, listen, no, women are biologically different than men. Uh, they are clearly the weaker sex, uh, intellectually and physically. And he points to some evidence at the time, he thinks, uh, that proves that. Uh, and he says, actually, if you were to throw women out there into a competitive market as legal equals without the protection of men, they're actually going to become less equal uh, because they won't be able to compete with men in a free marketplace. Uh, they're going to get creamed. Uh, so why would you want to take these protections away from them uh, when they so desperately need them in order to actually enjoy a certain level of equality with men, at least within the household, under the protection of somebody like their husband who will insulate them uh, from the twos and fro's of the world? Uh, and this is a remarkable thesis, right, that anticipates so much of what you see right now uh, in terms of the defense of patriarchy. Uh, you know, it appeals to biological facts about the inequality of women, uh, and then, in fact, inverts arguments for equality into an argument for inequality by saying that actually women are more equal in a patriarchal familial setting than they would be if they were declared equal under the law and given equal rights to men, because then they'll just be creamed in a competitive marketplace, right? Uh, and most of us, I think, right now would reject that. You know, there's probably a few conservatives out there that would say we should go back to you know the days of formal inequality and formal discrimination between women. Uh, but I think if we look at the aptitudes uh, that women have demonstrated when being allowed to compete on the same terrain as men, uh, it's quite extraordinary. So James James thesis just doesn't seem applicable any longer unless you're on the alt right and you buy into a lot of that stuff. Uh, and so sometimes just experience can testify to the wrongness of efforts at naturalization. Uh, but there's another way that people have tried to naturalize inequalities and another response that I think that we can make to that. So let's take Charles Murray's uh, book, you know, The Bell Curve, as another example, right? Uh, I've always thought, and in fact, he thinks that the most effective way to respond to that uh, isn't by pointing out that it's shoddy empirical scholarship, which it is, by the way. I mean, I think Stephen Jay Gould proved beyond a doubt that uh, you know, a lot of the kind of stuff in there that's, you know, talking about racial inequalities is just crap, right, uh, from an empirical or social scientific standpoint. But let's say that we ex take seriously this idea that, look, some people just have more natural talents than others. There's nothing that we can really do about that, uh, at least, you know, in a deeply meaningful way. Uh, and so losses must fail where they lie, right? Uh, if some people just are able to exercise their natural talents and wind up better off than others, you know, who are we to defy nature in that respect? I think that, you know, a good Rawlsian response to that is, well, no, if you acknowledge that these differences are immutably set by nature, then to a certain extent, they're morally arbitrary, right? You didn't do anything to deserve your, your uh, natural talents any more than I deserved my natural talents, uh, whatever they happen to be, right? So why should that be determinative of where someone ends up in life, especially if we take seriously the idea that your investment uh, in your life going well is as important to you as my investment in my life going well is to me, Right. Uh, so that's a Rawlsian way that you can respond to these kind of naturalization arguments that I think is very powerful. Uh, and it's one that I'd like to see the left using a little bit more when confronting um, these usually bad, but sometimes impressive uh, empirical cases uh, for why it is that inequality is just natural and there's nothing we can do about it. Change directions for a second and ask about another definitional thing, which is we uh, just in kind of common conversation about politics in the States, use conservatism and the right as synonyms. Call someone on the right, you can also call them conservative, and we take those to mean the same thing. Is that correct? Is conservatism the same thing as the right as you've defined it? No, not at all. Uh, so the political right uh, is just as diverse, if not more diverse, uh, than the political left, right? Uh, it pains me to say that, but it's true. Uh, and actually, this diversity... Uh, has contributed to a real problem uh, in right-wing or conservative studies, as it's sometimes called. Uh, and that's just, not just me as a leftist saying this. Uh, you can read Edmund Neal's really fantastic book, Conservatism. Uh, you know, Edmund is a moderate, you know, Tory, Burkean kind of figure. Uh, and he, in the introduction of that book, is like, we've had a really hard time pinning down what it means to be conservative or on the right, uh, precisely because there is just so much diversity uh, in on that end of the political spectrum. Now, I think there are reasons for this, but I'll just make a quick, a quick analytical distinction, right? Uh, conservatism um, of the sort that you see emerging in, say, Burkeanism uh, tends to argue that what we need to do is 
preserve social institutions the way they are, uh, and that if we are going to change them, uh, it needs to be done slowly and gradually, right? Uh, you know, conservatism essentially means, you know, changing what you must in order to conserve what you can, right? Uh, and that's a venerable tradition on the political right. It has many prominent advocates, uh, and it's usually the way that the political right has been understood uh, in the United States, for example. Uh, but it by no means exhausts the array of views that you can see uh, on the political right. Uh, so I'll just give a few examples, right? Uh, in instances where conservatives or people on the right think that the left or liberals have been, to use Corey Robbins' term, in the driver's seat for too long in society, uh, they can sometimes become very radically opposed to conserving much of anything, right? Uh, and that's not just me spitballing. Uh, you can read Glenn Elmer's recent essay, uh, Conservatism is No Longer Enough for the American Conservative, uh, where he says, look, you know, the left has been in the driver's seat for a very, very long time. Uh, they've completely changed the culture. Uh, we now see the widespread toleration of LGBTQ rights. Trans activism is taking off. Uh, the welfare state is getting ever bigger. Uh, he thinks I'd contend with him on that. So what's left to conserve, right? There's nothing left to conserve, right? Uh, what we need is radicalism instead. Uh, and there are many radical figures uh, on the political right who will emerge typically in these time periods where they see liberalism or progressivism uh, as hegemonic, right? Uh, and in these kinds of instances, they can demand dramatic transformations of society and the state uh, that rival or sometimes outdo uh, anything that you can see coming from even the radical left. Uh, and probably the most spectacular instance of this uh, is, of course, fascism. Uh, in the early 20th century, right? Uh, or the radical right more broadly in the early 20th century, uh, when many people in Italy and Germany were deeply concerned about the emergence of strong communist and social democratic movements in their countries. Uh, in Italy, there was a deep concern about the rise of the Communist Party and the transition to, to parliamentarism. Uh, and in Germany, it was even worse, right? You had the Social Democratic Party literally create the Weimar Republic in the aftermath of the First World War. Uh, and everyone on the radical right looks at this and says, we're not conserving any of this, right? Uh, we're not interested in conserving the Weimar Republic. Italian fascists are definitely not interested in conserving Italian parliamentarianism. Uh, what we need to do is completely upend the system. Uh, and so fascists will develop their own very complex um, and very brutal vision of a palingenetic national utopia uh, that is intended to look very different uh, from the left's vision of utopia. Uh, while also being different from what Italian and German conservatives wanted, uh, because both Italian fascists and uh, German Nazis will say things that are very similar to what Elmer said about the conservative movement in the United States today, right? That conservatives have proven utterly incapable of halting the tide uh, of liberal and progressive reform. Uh, they're way too sclerotic, lazy, flabby. Uh, and so what we need is radicalism of the right uh, in order to combat that, not this kind of wishy-washy rhino stuff. How does individualism fit into this? Because individualism has often been seen as the opposite of leftism, right? Like there's always the critique. So this was, you mentioned Ayn Rand earlier. She was always accusing people on the left of being collectivists and in opposition to the individual. And that that kind of thinking is pretty common, but we certainly have seen lately a rise in what we might call uh, – communitarian conservatism or right communitarianism and and often a an explicit rejection of like saying the problem is so this is Josh Hawley used to write about this before his political career like the problem is individualism and we need to get away from individualism but individualism doesn't seem to be necessarily in tension with the hierarchies that the right wants to support like you could say Everyone is is an individual. There isn't collective identity. You shouldn't subsume your identity to a collective. But they're still individuals doing their individual things are going to create an at, uh, a hierarchy either because of innate characteristics or different preferences or different metallic souls or whatever. But but it's you could that doesn't necessarily entail rejecting individualism. So what's the relationship there? Well, I think this is very complicated, but it helps to historicize this a little bit, right? So I still will see sometimes people use these terms individualism and collectivism uh, as a way of demarcating left and right. Uh, but it's important to note that that only really became 
common parlance uh, in the 20th century in the Anglosphere, uh, and then only within a very small subset uh, of Anglo-liberals and, and kind of ordered liberty conservatives for whom this kind of distinction makes sense, right? Uh, I mean, let, let's be very clear, right? From the very beginning, uh, many on the political right, particularly in Europe, but also in the United States, had their own vision uh, of what a kind of meaningful collective would look like. Uh, and they projected that uh, as the kind of ideal society he was supposed to aspire to. Uh, and many conservatives, including in the United States, but especially in Europe again, uh, were very critical of what they saw as the kind of libertine permissiveness and egalitarianism uh, that underpinned things like liberal individualism uh, or socialist demands for emancipation, right? Uh, and it's also very much the case that many uh, on the political left uh, have been extraordinarily insistent on the importance of individualism uh, as being at the epicenter of progressive concerns. Uh, let's just go back to John Stuart Mill, right? John Stuart Mill won't find a much more articulate defender uh, of individualism than Mill, you know, author of On Liberty. Also argued uh, for a kind of moderate socialism a la workplace cooperatives. Uh, and his argument was, look, you know, individualism uh, requires that we foster human capabilities uh, in a very deep and robust way. Because if we don't foster those capabilities, then people won't actually be empowered to express their individualism uh, in the same kind of, in the kind of meaningful ways that we want. Uh, and so we need to have a state that will intervene and provide things like a certain level of sustenance, be militant in opposing things like patriarchal domination uh, in order to allow individualism to express itself. So I've just never thought of the individualism collectivism binary as very helpful in terms of mapping uh, the left-right binary, right? You can find forms of leftism uh, that are very anti-individualist. Let's be clear about that, right? Uh, you can also find forms of leftism, whether Mill or anarchism, et cetera, that are highly individualist in their orientation. Similarly, uh, you can find figures on the political right that are committed to a kind of individualism. Think about somebody like Ayn Rand, for example, right? Uh, or Nietzsche in some moments, even though he claimed he wasn't an individualist but was concerned with rank ordering. Uh, many people have interpreted it that way. Uh, but you can also find plenty on the political right who will be profoundly critical of decadent bourgeois libertinism uh, and all of associated crassness, who will insist that one needs to invest oneself uh, in the destiny of the nation, for example, or in the destiny of one's race. Uh, in order to be truly elevated uh, above the mundane crudeness uh, of Marxist society. Uh, so I've just never seen this as being very useful. Uh, I think it was a relic of the Cold War era, uh, where again, Cold War liberals and conservatives like to make this difurcation between collectivism and individualism, because uh, it was nice and simple and clean. But it doesn't really tell us very much about these things historically, and certainly not contemporaneously. We've heard a lot about the left opposing free speech and cancel culture and campuses clamping down on free and open debate. And I, so I was struck, there's a, there's a line in your book that I came across in the introduction um, that I guess I'd love for you to unpack a bit because it, it cuts against that narrative. And that is you say, the political right has always been uncomfortable with the idea of universal critical thinking and permissive free debate, so beloved by the liberal tradition. What do you mean? Well, I think I mean uh, just what I said I mean, right? Uh, so a lot of people are kind of shocked uh, at, say, the anti-CRT initiatives uh, that are taking place in Florida under DeSantis' auspices or Chris Rufo's auspices, really, right? Uh, my argument would be there's nothing shocking about this. So if one goes back to the origins of the political right uh, and the work of people like Evan Burke or, De or Joseph DeMaestra, you certainly don't see... Uh, a robust defense of free speech, at least for everybody, right? And absolutely, you do not see a robust defense of critical thinking, right? Uh, so we'll start with uh, Burke, right? Uh, Burke, in his speech uh, and his speech he gave to Parliament, uh, once said that it's a real tragedy when people inquire too deeply into the origins of nations. Uh, now, you might think that's a little bit weird for somebody who seems as interested in history as Burke, but the reason he gives is very clear, right? Once you go back and inquire too deeply into the origins of nations, a lot of those sublime qualities you associate with the monarchy or the aristocracy start to get stripped away and you realize that, you know, William of Normandy just decided that he wanted his ass on the throne of England. Uh, he landed with 6,000 men. Uh, the, Harold Gobinson made a couple of mistakes in the Battle of Hastings, and that's why we have the monarchy that we did, right? Very easily could have cut the other way, right? Uh, and, you know, he points out that the same was true uh, when the French revolutionaries started needling uh, at the origins of the French state, saying, you know, 
do we really need to pay so much attention to this Bourbon monarchy that installed itself through violence and theft and expropriation, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and you're know, drawing upon these histories and aligning them with various kind of critical kinds of arguments. Uh, so Burke is very skeptical of these things precisely because too much inquiry of this sort strips away, again, all the pleasing illusions that make subordination easy, right? Uh, now, he's a little bit more comfortable with free inquiry of a certain sort uh, as a moderate uh, kind of Whiggish Tory uh, than some others on the political right are. Uh, but Joseph de Maistre, again, his contemporary, is far more emphatic, uh, where he states, listen, uh, enlightenment philosophy is fundamentally a destructive force. That's his term, destructive. Uh, and the reason is because it submits authority and power to the needlesome criticism of the mass, every single person. Uh, and everyone thinks that they are entitled to now have an opinion on who should be in charge, why they should be in charge, and has different motivations uh, for behind that. Uh, and he says, when you submit power to this endless series of criticisms, you destroy it uh, because you delegitimate it fundamentally. Instead, power needs to be treated not as something that everyone is entitled to critique or really anyone is entitled to critique, uh, but instead you, you defer to power as an article of faith. Uh, or you treat it as something dogmatically, right? Uh, and you don't question dogmas, right? You defer to them and they answer your questions. Uh, and throughout his work, you find this remarkable critique of Enlightenment rationalism and precisely the way it has this disintegrationist or destructive quality to it. Uh, and there are just a huge numbers of examples uh, of this kind of anti-intellectualism that you see emerging on the political right, all motivated by precisely uh, the same kinds of anxieties that you see Burke and de Maistre articulate far more clearly, right? Uh, Yoram Hazoni is a very good example of this recently, right? Yoram is a friend of me of mine, right? I know him personally. I, he's a nice guy. We get along well. Uh, but in his recent book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, uh, he makes exactly the same kind of de Maistrean objection to Enlightenment reason by saying, listen, uh, all that reason does is raise endless series of questions uh, that very few of us could ever comprehensively answer. Uh, and this makes establishing stable organizing hierarchies impossible because everyone will then have different opinions that reason the Rexums to about what the appropriate form of social organization should be. So we should defer to tradition instead. Uh, and deferring to tradition doesn't mean that tradition uh, is true according to some rationalistic standard. It's just been taken to be true uh, or taken to be moral for a long period of time and it seems to be working, uh, at least for the people who benefit from those traditions. So why not defer to that? Right. Uh, and again, you see DeSantis and Chris Rufo making the same kind of arguments. Uh, in fact, Chris Rufo makes exactly this argument in his new book on cultural, uh, the cultural revolution, right? Uh, that Nathan Robinson and I are reviewing together where he's like, listen, the average American understands in his instincts that there's something bad about critical race theory uh, and the way that it deconstructs what he calls the myths uh, about the founding fathers, about the country. Uh, and we don't want that, right? Um, if we don't buy into these myths and we deny what our instincts tells us happens to be true uh, by inquiring too deeply into whether Jefferson was a slaveholder and whether that might have some bearing on whether he took slavery all that seriously, uh, then it's going to divide us uh, and it's going to sap what we need uh, for a sense of unity. Um, but I mean, my response to this is always like, listen, uh, all the pleasing illusions that make submission genteel and easy uh, might be something that works really well if you happen to see yourself as a beneficiary of social hierarchy and social institutions as they exist now. Uh, but, you know, one person's benign set of pleasing illusions that make subordination easy uh, are what I would call a kind of ruling hegemony uh, or ruling patriarchy or ruling white supremacy. Uh, and I think there's really something to being fiercely critical of them. Uh, and I would argue that there's a very enlightenment spirit to that, uh, which is why Somebody like Joseph Demetra was very hostile to it from the very beginning. You mentioning Hazoni's argument, just immediately what flashed was the exhaustion a parent feels when they've asked a kid to do something and the kid just keeps asking why. And eventually you just have to I I confess I have I am guilty of this myself of falling back on a version of because I said so. Oh, me too. I mean, sometimes I get students will send me like 15 emails and I'm like, listen, this is just what the text says, defer to the text. And if not, Listen to what I say. We've all been there. But this raises the interesting issue about elites versus working class or the populace within the right. Because if, if the right on the one hand is about 
preserving hierarchies. And it kind of sneers at the unwashed masses thinking too much about things, and that is a threat yeah. to those. Or call them the swinish multitude. Yes. Then, but on the other hand, we tend to think of the right as a anti-elitist and like lower classes movement. And that certainly that certainly tracks in like the polling data that, you know, the rural communities, the rural poor poor communities tend to be much more right-wing than the cosmopolitan elite urban enclaves that are higher income and higher educational attainment and so on. And exactly. And I so I understand the appeal of preserving hierarchies to the people who are at the top of the hierarchies. But what is the appeal to the people who are at the bottom? Well, that's an extraordinarily complicated question. And it's a fantastic question. Uh, I should answer. Or sorry, I should say. Uh, and it's not something that my book tackles uh, as thoroughly as it should. Just, you know, full confession. Because part of this is, uh, truthfully, because people usually get, gave me a lot of shit when I wrote my Rise of Postmodern Conservatism book, which we talked about, you know, ages ago. And they're like, well, you're pathologizing the right. Or you're dealing with like, you know... Treating the right is a symptom of something. You're not taking, taking its intellectual argument seriously. So this book was really my attempt to answer those criticisms. You know, for those of you who know me, I do listen right to criticism. So I was like, no, I'm just going to take the more rarefied forms of conservatism seriously uh, and deal with you know the bigwigs, you know the Burks, the Demestras, the Nietzsches, the Heideggers, uh, ignoring you know the kind of Trumpist dimension to this. Uh, but what I think you can see by looking at the conservative intellectual tradition, particularly starting with Demestra, and I'm very clear about this in the book, is an acknowledgement, and this goes back to what I said initially in our interview, that the old appeal to various forms of social hierarchy as just common sense is not going to cut it in a post-Enlightenment age, right? That to a certain extent, this egalitarian supposition uh, advanced by liberals and then later re-articulated by socialists is really gaining ground uh, on this expectation that we just live in a hierarchy uh, society that's organized by hierarchical complementarity. So you need to find ways to make hierarchy more palatable, uh, including to the masses at this point. Uh, and what you've seen, especially starting in the 19th century, is a truly remarkable set of intellectual exercises by conservatives who are usually very successful uh, at making hierarchy palatable to segments of the masses. Uh, and there are a few different examples of this that I'll give. Uh, but again, the left and liberals seriously underestimate the right if they don't understand its capacity to be demotic in this sense. Uh, so one example I give in the book is, again, de Maistre, who says, listen, people argue that democracy, or French republicanism really, is elevating for the common man, right? Which is why we should move towards a democracy or a public. I say to you, actually, that there is no political form that is more elevating for the ordinary person than monarchy, right? And aristocracy. Uh, because monarchy and aristocracy allows the ordinary person to participate in its splendor uh, without actually having any kind of say uh, in how political institutions are organized. That's very important for him, right? And you can see this kind of leadership principle uh, and this idea that you participate in the splendor of the leader re-articulated by many, especially on the far right going forward. Think again about fascism and Nazism, right? That you are elevated through submission to the leader. Uh, and in fact, there's something almost democratic about willfully submitting yourself as a group to the leader and allowing the reader to re-articulate your will. Right. Uh, then later on, you know, let's just go with the fascism example. Uh, you find Carl Schmitt, deeply influenced by De Maestra, making exactly the same kind of argument in uh, a 20th century context, where he says, "Listen, liberals believe that parliamentarism uh, is a kind of democracy, but is it really? Right? Uh, all that parliamentarism is is rule by the majority." At most, right? Uh, or if you look at, you know, the United States and how often the Republican Party wins, not even ruled by a party that's voted in by the majority, right? A uh, party that's kind of gaming the system. Uh, but he says, if you really want a democracy, uh, what we could do is install a dictator uh, that actually has the support or constitutes the support of the general will of the nation. Uh, and then when the leader acts... He's acting on behalf of the people or he's expressing the will of the people in this demotic way that parliamentarism could only ever dream of. This is from his book, Constitutional Theory, where he says Rousseau is absolutely right uh, about the need for to generate a general will 
in order for a state to be sincerely legitimated. He's just wrong about how to go about doing that and assuming that the mass of people should actually participate in politics. Instead, you have this leader who constitutes the general will for the nation, right? Another extraordinary example of a conservative intellectual, in this case, a kind of fascist intellectual, finding ways to make a form of social hierarchy and authoritarianism seem almost like a democratic submission uh, to leadership, right? So those are two European examples we, I can give of how conservatism or the far right moves in a populist direction, uh, but it's by no means foreign to the United States, as you well know, right? Uh, so let's take the race issue uh, as one that's deeply fortunate, really. Unfortunate is the wrong word, deeply appalling. Uh, so in the 19th century, um, around the 1950s and 1940s, what you see is an extraordinary pivot in the way slavery is justified, um, including to the white working class in the American South. Because there's a realization on the part of people like Stuart Townsend uh, or John C. Calhoun uh, that slavery is increasingly being perceived as immoral by many Americans. Uh, and they're deeply concerned that if they lose the white working class in the American South, then there's really nobody who's going to be invested in maintaining the slave system in a way that slaveholders want, right? Uh, and it's a legitimate worry, right? Um, so what you start to see is this mass effort to argue that, in fact, poor Southern whites, even if they don't own slaves themselves, benefit in certain kinds of ways from the retention of the slave system. Uh, and there are a number of pamphlets that are produced by defenders of antebellum slavery that make this very explicit, right? So you have Southern senators who will say things like, listen, in the North, uh, a white worker uh, sits there and is at the very bottom of the totem pole, right? He's you know, the bottom of the rung. Uh, but here in the South, any white worker is part of the nobility, Right. Uh, and they get to sit there and look down upon the slaves, even if they don't owe themselves from a position of infinite remove and that they know when they're a white worker and they're called to labor on these plantations, that they get to sit at the supper table with the master. He will call them by name uh, and address them as sir or mister in a way that he would never address the slaves. Uh, so there's this kind of equality with the slave owning aristocracy that the white working class individual gets to benefit from, uh, that the slave is entirely denied, right? Uh, and that's extraordinarily malicious, I almost want to say demonic, uh, effort that was very successful uh, at convincing the white working class in the American South that, look, you benefit from slavery even if you don't own slaves because you get to sit there and look down upon the slave from this position of infinite remove and know that even if you're poor, you're still better than them, right? Uh, and sadly, we've seen many instances uh, of this kind of attempt to make racism a democratic project that the white working class uh, can participate in, uh, successfully deployed throughout the history uh, of the United States. You know, George Wallace and Trump's campaigns are just two more modern instances of this. Uh, and I find it very frustrating uh, that this trope has proven as successful as it has over time. Uh, but again, the left underestimates it at its peril uh, because let's look at what happened in uh, the American South around the mid-19th century, right? Millions of poor working class whites did rise to defend the slaveholding system. They were willing to die in order to preserve it, right? So one should never be able to underestimate the appeal of these kinds of things. This seems to present quite a problem then. And so... You and I, for example, have our political disagreements, many of them quite deep, but we can have persuasive arguments and fruitful conversations about them because I think that we're both – that the underlying values and, and to some extent kind of a picture of, of the ideal world at least have enough overlap that our, our philosophies can, can come into conversation with each other. But the the right as you've described it seems to be something fundamentally different, that the world that this kind of hierarchical, anti-intellectual, anti-individualistic right wants is just at its base entirely incompatible with liberalism broadly defined and a liberal society, a dynamic and open society and so on. And so unlike say you and I where we want 
roughly similar things, we just have disagreements about the best way to achieve it. You and I versus someone on the right, as you've described it, want wildly divergent things. And we, as you mentioned, like we've seen the right rise in power. The far right took over the White House. It's taken over at a lot of the state levels. Um, it may or may not gain power again next year. What do we, as as people who engage at this with this stuff at an intellectual level, do about that? Like how you have read, I think, more books by contemporary right wingers than is healthy for anyone. Um, and my wife would say the same thing. Yeah. And so like, what do we, what do we do about it? How do we have conversations with these people? How do we have arguments with them? How do we engage in persuasion with them? Is there, is there any hope for that? I do think there is hope, right? Uh, and I mean, like I said, I'm friends with a number of conservatives and right-wingers. Uh, we don't agree about anything, uh, because we start from very different premises, uh, about what a good society would look like. Um, but as long as we're aware of the fact that we start from very different premises about what a different society could look like, uh, we might be able to have a meaningful conversation without talking past one another. Uh, although I'd be the first to acknowledge that it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you see me on Twitter, right? There are some points where I deal with right wingers and I just sit there. And I'm like, I just, there's nothing that we can say to one another because it's just going to be a parade of insults back and forth and that's all there can be to it, right? But let's take a step back, right? So somebody like F.A. Hayek, for example, or the libertarian tradition, uh, I feel a lot of kindred, uh, kinship with. Uh, now, I know that's odd coming from a democratic socialist, and Pike was famously not exactly uh, forward about his fondness for democratic socialism. Uh, but when it comes to core principles, right, uh, Hayek was deeply committed to this idea that all human beings are equal. He was deeply critical of meritocratic arguments that there were recognizably superior people. Uh, and fundamentally, his argument is about what's the best way to instantiate respect uh, for a society of moral equals who are entitled to a high degree of liberty uh, in order to express their individualism. Uh, and he has his solution to that riddle. I have my solution to that riddle. But fundamentally, we're aspiring to the same kind of end. We just have very different means uh, of going about that. Uh, and the nice thing about that then is then we can have but ultimately are empirical debates about this, right? Well, does Sweden do a better job of respecting individual liberty while securing respect for moral equality than the United States, um, circa like the 1990s and 1980s under Reagan Clinton? No, we can debate about that, right? Um, then, you know, we'll fire facts back and forth one another and we'll argue about whether workplace cooperatives are consistent with liberty or antithetical to liberty and all that. The political right operates again, and I think Hayek is right about this, from a very different standpoint. Uh, with this notion that there are recognizably superior persons in society, and the best kind of society is one that acknowledges that uh, and grants to the recognizably superior people liberty, power, and authority uh, to do what is best for everyone while denying uh, the same kind of entitlements to people at the bottom, however it is that that's conceived, right? Uh, now, that's a very different set of premises, right, uh, from, say, you know, my disagreement with somebody like F.A. Hayek. Uh, and I think that in order to have a meaningful discussion, uh, there needs to be an acknowledgement of these different premises, uh, a deep interrogation of the root uh, of these very differentiated convictions, uh, and then maybe you can start to try to find points of intercies uh, where you might agree about this issue or that issue. Um, but ultimately, I mean, the reality is that I just don't believe that there are recognizably superior persons. Uh, I believe completely that there are people who have extraordinary talents that I lack and that other people lack and that should be celebrated and acknowledged. Uh, but, you know, in terms of is their life more valuable than mine or should they be more entitled to political power than me uh, or anyone else, I would just emphatically say no. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our Discord listener community and book club by following the link in the show notes. Reimagining Liberty is a project of the Unpopulist and is produced by Landry Ayers. 